you would, would you turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations chapter 5, that's found on page 876 of your pew Bibles. Here we come to the end of this lament. We've gone through this series, we've gone through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse so that we could understand not only the grief of the people of the Lord, but particularly that we would be able to see an image of God from a vantage point. We don't often see him, we don't often look at him through the vantage point of this lament and, and of the, the, the beauty of what we see in God, seeing him from the one who is the disciplinary God, of the one who is taking a rebellious people and has punished them, has disciplined them that he might bring them to himself again. And, and it's not the way we generally see the beauty of God, we have seen it as we've gone through this book, and I hope we would see it again, even as we come to the end of this lament, the end of this biblical statement of grief. Before we read Lamentations 5, let's pray. Father, we desire in this text to see you anew, to see you again, and, and to see you perhaps in a way we don't tend to look at you, to be able to see a grace that is veiled but, but still beautiful of a God and a Father who shows forth how good he is, but from the position of a Father that, that is disciplining, that of, of a Father, of a loving Father, but who is taking a rod of discipline to his rebellious child. And there is great beauty in that. There is great beauty in discipline correctly done, and, and discipline done from a fatherly hand that, that ultimately has the best intent for his people. And Father, we pray that even as we've been seeking you in this grief and in this lament, we would pray that we would see this again and especially see how Christ has answered this and has revealed it to us and fulfills even the laments of his people. This is our prayer, Lord, that you would reveal to us today. We ask in your great name, amen. Lamentations 5, beginning in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands, no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under the loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head, woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. Through Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. 
Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Sends the reading of God's word and concludes this book of lament. So we've gone through lamentations. Perhaps you've felt what one pastor described, uh, an experience we are familiar with. How, how would you take a Band-Aid off of your skin, particularly a Band-Aid that has been placed in an area where it had to, 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 to cover the, the hair on the skin itself? And, and what do you do? Do you employ the, the method of a very slow, painful ripping off of the Band-Aid? Or, or do you go for it in one fell swoop and just, just get rid of it? Sort of a gross imagery, but you see the point. Is this lament that? Is this lament rather than the quick, just get, give me the pain altogether and rip it off? Or, or is it instead this seemingly endless prolonging of pain and grief as it's, as it's removed? Is it like that? You see, we don't like when stories seem to, to take us so low but not bring us high enough. Perhaps you've read a, a story or watched a movie that, that really describes a descent and a fall from grace, a, a, a fall from what one had. There was a, a particular movie I remember watching where it, it did this, where, where this, this person who was wealthy and had it all and had a family experiences a great loss. His, his wife is murdered and he goes into despair. He loses his custody of his child because of his behavior. He loses all his wealth. He falls so low. And then the end of the movie sort of reverses it, but not fully. You, you end the story and, and are, are thinking, I'm depressed. I, yes, there was a bit of a, a recovery, a bit of joy at the end, but you, you know where they began, and now you see where it ends, and it, 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 it's still sad. Well, that, that in many ways is what Lamentations is purposely doing. It, it is prolonging the struggle and prolonging the grief. And you ask, well, why would it do that? Why doesn't it just rip the Band-Aid off? Why isn't it one chapter? Why don't we just get it all over with right away? Well, that's because when we go through grief, it is a long process. And it isn't one that you can always just take in one fell swoop. There's a lot of wrestling that might be done, but with this purpose in mind. And it's not actually that you would no longer be sad. That's a goal. It's a desire and it's an outcome. But that's not the desire and why we wrestle in our grief. Why do we do it? We do it to see the Lord. We do it as we read Israel's prayer at the end of that text to return to the Lord, to restore. And that's not always because there's a sin there. We've made that point as we've gone through this book. It, it can be applied in, in deeper ways. This, this was the situation in Israel. But, but to seek a restoration to the Lord doesn't always mean it's because we have rebelled and, and turned away from him. To seek a restoration to the Lord can be applied that we're just seeking the deeper faith, or to put it in, in everyday language, we're seeking to see God in a greater way, even in our grief. And so we, we grapple with the pain, and so we, we take it as this prolonged, prolonged extent of injury and pain so that we could better understand what God is doing. And, and sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes God needs to put us in a place of, of agonizing pain, 
of, of great unsettledness where, where we're crying before him and as we're contemplating him and the gospel, we reach new levels of understanding of who God is. We, we see the beauty of who he is that we would not have seen before. We would not have seen were it not to be placed in a time in which grief lasts and, and it clings to us. And as we've gone through Lamentations, we, we reached this point. We, we've, we followed the flow. We followed the flow where the first two chapters were, were just a recitation of, of pain and there was no hope there. Then we've seen in chapter 3 where we're, we're led and trusting the faithfulness of the Lord. But we also follow that, that going back into grief, a, a, a downward spiral again. But now we come to chapter 5 and a prayer a prayer that concludes the, the whole poem, this whole journey. What I would hope we see here, and this is, what I, this is the, the theme of our message, this is in many respects the theme of the entire book and what I want us to have in our minds. Our prayers of faith rest on this hope. It is impossible for our lament not to move our God to action. It is impossible for our lament not to move our God to action or... To put it positively, through Christ, our laments must move God to action. That's how I would summarize this for the, for, for the church today, for, for the body of believers here and now as we sit here. What do we take from Lamentations and what do we take from Lamentations 5? Through Christ, our laments must move God to action. Now, we'll explain that, but I want to have that in our minds as we go through and, and, to, and to see the beauty of that great truth. So we'll look at it in two points. First, we're going to look at just the final rehearsal of sorrow. The final rehearsal of sorrow. This happens in verses 2 through 18. We're going to skip verse 1 and deal with that in our second point, but verses 2 through 18 is what we're familiar with in this book. It, it again goes through the whole rehearsal of pain and what they've gone through and we've done it before we're just really briefly then gonna gonna cover this this imagery and go through it a couple of thoughts on the the structure notice, notice that this is a different structure in one sense as you thumb through the book you would see that this is the shortest chapter of them all and in fact it begins with a word that the others did not, it doesn't begin with how or woe, which is a statement of lament. Rather, it begins with a, a word of prayer, remember, it opens, remember, O Lord. And so there's a difference in beginning. It's, it's much shorter. And if you would have had this in Hebrew and was, were a Hebrew speaker, you would also see it's not following the Hebrew alphabet anymore. But it's still linked to the other chapters because there are 22 verses, the number of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, it's not following through it in that order, but it still takes that same structure. But it's much shorter. The words are winding down. He doesn't have as much to say. The prophets and the community's words are reaching their final conclusion. And that's how we see as we, we go through it. In verses 2 through 3, you see that the community puts the Lord... The community puts before the Lord sorrow, sorrow of lost land, sorrow of lost seed. Verses 2 through 3 pick up what's common in the Old Testament, that, that part of the covenant which was land and seed. You can think back to Abraham. What was the center of that covenant? Well, well God had promised him a land in which to dwell and people in which to fill it. Land and seed, and, and that was picking up in, in, on the promise given to Adam and Eve of a, a seed who would strike the serpent. And 
Now then, the question becomes, is the, is the very flow and desire of redemptive history thwarted? Land and seed, which, which was the whole point of so much of, of the Bible up to this point, seemingly is lost in these verses. And so they're grieving what was jeopardized here, their, their promised land, the, the dwelling place with God himself. And that's what the land symbolized, dwelling with God. They, they've lost the, the seed, it seems. They're taken away. They're, they're gone. So what's going to happen? And then briefly going through these other verses, verse 4 shows that even life's necessities, water and wood, they need to pay for it. You know, they're, they're an oppressed people now. What they need to even live and eke out a living, they have to use their wages. Something they could have had for free as the people of God living in the land, now it comes at a price. Verse 6, it shows they are looking for bread all over because they're famished. They're looking to go to Egypt. They're looking to go to Assyria. They're looking for bread from their enemies. That's how, that's how low they are. They, they need to return to those who are striking them, to their captors. It's, it's slavish. It's like they're slaves. The, the very sustenance of their life comes from those who have enslaved them, who have misused and abused them. Verse 7, it isn't just them. It's not them blaming past generations for their trouble. It's not them just saying, it's all because of the sins of our fathers that this has come upon us. Rather, it's a mourning of what they've done, that they've, they've continued to do what their fathers have done, that the sins of their fathers they have been raised in, they've embraced and followed. And so the sins of the fathers are coming upon the children and striking them as well. So it's not just this is unfair, Lord, it's, it's this mourning. God's returning the iniquity of the fathers. We, we read it in God's law for, for those who are wicked. It, it continues. It, it, there's a generational continuance not that God's unjust, not that he, he literally punishes you for those sins that you didn't commit, but it's this, it's this family and generational apostasy and rebellion, and, and the father's sins are their sins. And they're recognizing that. Verse 9 seems to describe that the way they were harassed, even as they're going to seek food, they face a sword to just forage to go out and find food. They have enemies. They have robbers. They have those who would, who, who would seek to destroy their lives even there. Verse 10 is describing the effects of famine. And the sense here is, is either they've become hot, hot as bouts of fever have come upon them caused by malnutrition. That's, that's one possibility. Their, their, their bodies are burning because they're feverish, because they're sick, because they're malnourished. Or it's just that they are so famished, they're, they're so bereft of water and food that even their, their skin has, has become dry. Their bodies are racked. No moisture remains in them. That's, that's what they're, they're telling the Lord. Verses 11 through 14 describe the shame and humiliation brought on all segments of their society. Insult to the women, which is as well insult to the men who cannot protect their own, their own wives, their own daughters from abuse. And they're being, they're being abused in the, in the land of promise. Just let that sink in. That's, that's the, the sadness here. Verse 12 is the torture and execution of those most respectable in the nation. The princes are strung up. They're, they're executed. They're tortured. Elders who should have, have been respected, who had a place in the city gates, don't have that place anymore. Leadership is gone. Wisdom has left. 
Verse 13, young men are doing the work of slaves or the lowest of society. It's a disrespect to them. There they are grinding at the mill. This is, this is something the young and, and vibrant men of the, of the day wouldn't, wouldn't have done, and they're forced to do it. And then even the young boys are overworked. They're there to carry wood. Again, the job of a slave or the, the job of an oppressed people. They, they're nothing more than pack mules. That's what they are. Verse 16, it says the crown falls from their head. This likely refers more than to just the loss of the, the reign of a king, the loss of their king. It, it likely is more referring to all that was their glory, the crown of their heads, all that was their inheritance, all that they possess is fallen. It's fallen away and their inheritance is gone. And then verse 18 ends with the rehearsal of sorrow with Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God. It's desolate. Who, do, who lives there? Jackals, scavengers, beasts that have no place among an, a, an inhabited dwelling. That's who's living in Zion. That's who's living in the, in, on the mountain of God, the holy mountain, jackals. So they're rehearsing their sorrow. And, and now I, we went through that briefly because we've gone through the imagery before. But why again? What, what's the point? And, and this, is again, this is where we start seeing the beauty of God and the beauty of the covenant. And why? Well, why rehearse your sorrow unless the one you're bringing it to cares? Why go through the pain? Why open up your heart? I'm guessing that you would not open your own heart and the the deepest trials you face, your temptations, your fears to just anyone. Even close friends, you're, you're probably reserved. Well, I'm not going to tell them that. I'm not going to open up my heart that, and pour out before them all my sorrow and pain. What are they going to think of me? What, what are they going to say? You see, to, to, to so open up all of your sorrow and all of that you're feeling, the person you're talking to, you're trusting in, and you're hoping that they care. And so who is this community making this lament to? Well, We've seen it before. They're, they're making it to God. And that is how we start seeing that beauty, and I hope that's how you start seeing it as well. Sometimes all you can do is tell God how pained you are, how sorrowful you are. And that's all that will come out of your mouth, but, but does, it, does it even mean anything? Well, yes. Because just like if you do find someone, uh, another person who you can confide in and you can pour out your heart, it's it's a blessing, it's a therapy, it helps. Because even if they can't do anything about it, you know they care. But they're pouring out their hearts to the one who, who can do something about it and who they hope cares. That's why we lament. That's why you can rehearse your sorrow, because you're hoping that the rape of the people matters. And you're hoping that there's a God, and he's your God, and he sees the abuse. And he sees what happens to his land, and he sees that his mountain is full of jackals, and not the people that are his people. And that he would return them to it, that he would restore them, and that they're acknowledging, we have done the sins of our fathers, we have sinned, and it's come upon us. Hear us and restore us. These verses 
present the complaint of the people to their God, but it, it's not a complaint without purpose. It's a, it's a complaint with a desire, and the desire is restoration. The desire is God to, to reform or to, to show the covenant love again. And this complaint is framed by those petitions. That's what verse 1 is. It begins with that petition. It closes in verses 19 to 22 with prayer elements. It means this entire poem, this last poetic unit, is a prayer to God. And so notice how far we've come. It's not just the lament of chapters 1 and 2, nor is it just the prophet of chapter 3 telling the people what to do. Now the people are doing it, because the voice here is the voice of the people. It's the community speaking, and now they are praying to God. And and you see now why there are those, as we've talked about before, hints of hope at the end of Lamentations that wasn't there in the beginning. And the hint of hope is that this is not just a lament, it's a prayer. Given in prayer language, they didn't begin it with woe, they began it with remember. What does it mean to remember? It's not just, yeah, think of it. Telling God to remember something is telling him and asking him to act and to deliver. That's what they're, they're saying for God to do, and, and they say that, and then give this whole presentation of grief and pain. And what does it mean? It means that they're hoping and even believing that their lament matters to God and will move him to action. Parents know this well, just as parents with their children even when children are disobedient, even when children are, are needing to be punished and are, does your heart not go out to their grief or their pain? It does. And that's the same thing that's going out here. The children of God are acknowledging their sin and wrongdoing and, and asking that their Father would hear. And our Father, unlike us, as parents, is the perfect parent, is the perfect father. Would he not care? Would he not care about the covenant he made with them? Would he not care about the promises he made to them? Do you know that your grief and your pain and your suffering draws the attention of God? And that's what they're hoping They're hoping that they can tell God, this is how bad it is. Draw your attention here. Look from your throne and see it. And God does. And yours does the same. Your pain and your grief, is it it because of even your sin? Or is it just because of what you've been called to go through? It doesn't matter. Either way, we, we see here in Lamentations, even if it's due to your failure, your lament draws the attention of God because of a covenant relationship. Of a covenant relationship that we read earlier in the service that I will be your God and you will be my people. Of a promise made, of of, of a Genesis 15 ceremony when it was God who walked through the broken pieces and God who said he would keep the covenant. It's not on the people. It's not on their obedience. Yes, they needed to be punished or disciplined. Yes, they needed to be shown the error of their ways. They need to turn to the Lord. They need to obey Him and serve only Him. But it's always after the fact. It's always after the fact of God's deliverance and that God saved His people. And so they're turning to the Lord, rehearsing their pain because they're hoping that it matters to God, and it does. And that's what lamentations show, but... 
How do we get to that element I began? I said our theme for, for, our, for our church here right now is that through Christ, our laments must move God to action. We see that in our next point, that the lamenter's prayer breeds hope. The lamenter's prayer breeds hope. And, and here's what I mean. It is in the hope of the covenant and the promises that God gave and claiming this people as his own that they're hoping he would care so they're placing this lament and their petitions on the basis that God is their God and that God would return to them. Covenantal language, covenantal promises. Well, all of the promises of the covenant, all of it, is grounded and based in Jesus Christ himself. We, we have no covenant outside of him. The very, the very fact that God made a covenant with Adam was through Christ. And you say, well, how is that? Well, what was the promise God gave in the garden of a coming seed that we learn in the Bible is referring truly to Jesus Christ? And why did he give to Abraham a promise and take him as the father of the nation? Well, it was, again, it was for security of land and seed. Who secures the kingdom of God, the land? Who brings about the promise of the seed? It's Christ. So to say that God would care about his people because of the covenant is nothing less than saying that he's caring for the people because of Christ. Because the the foundation of promise, the foundation upon which God can come to a sinful people and save them, is in Christ. And that's why we can take the very point, which is for them that their faith rests on this hope, that it's impossible for their lament not to move God to action. We, We apply that now and say, well, then it means for us through Christ, all our laments and our pain must move God to action. And it's true. That's what it means in Christ. Clearly, this book ends with unanswered questions. Clearly, it still ends with pain, but it's ending with a claim of hope and the faithfulness of God. It's made progress, and and, and as we began, yes, it, it doesn't quite bring us to the end we might want. Lamentations doesn't. It, it's not all sunshine and roses. That isn't where it goes. And it's not the point. You see, we, we need to understand Lamentations is part of a greater whole. God is silent. He doesn't speak throughout this book. His prophet might speak on his behalf in a sense, but God does not speak. But he does elsewhere. This is that segment of God's word that is dealing with this position of a position of a people in great pain and great grief when God isn't speaking to them. And that's what we see here. And, and yeah, it's not perhaps that happy ending, but do you see where we've come? It began only with how lonely, how sorrowful, nothing is good, and it is ending with a prayer for deliverance amidst the sorrow. Don't, don't convince yourself that's a small step to take. That's, that's the biggest of steps. It's that step that, that is the one that carries you through the trial, and it's the one that carries you right to God himself. It's this type of prayer from the pits, knowing that God hears and will answer. Asking God to remember this distressful situation of the people. That's what we see in the closing chapter, verses 19 and following. Verse 18 had talked about the barrenness of Zion, but verse 19 talks about God on his throne. On one level, verse 19 
claiming God as, on his throne is, is a taunt to the enemies, to Babylon itself. It's taunting them because they are the ones oppressing the people. They're the victors. They're, they're the ones who have enslaved them and their God. That's what it would mean, that, that Yahweh's enslaved, that Babylon is greater, their gods are greater. But, but this is sort of putting it back in their faces. Our, our God is on the throne, and they believe it. Again, progression from where they began. God is on the throne, and, and now it, it, it's not only... Can't you just see? It's God's on the throne and he reigns. That's their, their confidence. And so on one hand, it's this taunt to Babylon, but it also shows that for Israel, who thought they were shattered, tempted to think that they were shattered beyond repair, here's the, that, that line of hope that shows it's not. God is on the throne despite the barrenness of the land. God is not without his throne. All that has happened was because God does reign. And this powerful nation was nothing but a tool that God is using to shape his people, to bring them back to himself. That's the power of God there. It's the sovereignty of God. The, the sovereign power of God, meaning his, his power that controls everything that happens, is an immense comfort to God's people and to us. He is on his throne. That's what verse 19 says. They're, they're even here praying these words that, that in Deuteronomy 30 was promised that for the time where they would rebel, that they could repent and seek the Lord and turn to him and he would bring them back. He's on his throne, which means that salvation is possible. The way out's there. Sort of like you're, you're, you're drowning and, and there's, there seems to be no way out, but then you, you realize, no, there is that lifeline. There is that ladder out of it. It's there. And that gives the hope. The very fact that God reigns is their hope. And then verse 20 shows the prayers of the people wondering how long God would take to answer them. We see here then that it's right for us on one hand to ask God to speed up our deliverance to make it happen. It's right for us on one hand to say, Lord, how long will you oppress? How long will you keep your, your shining countenance, your shining face from looking upon us? How long will you discipline? Will you not turn us back? And, and it's right to, to, to pray, to speed it up, to speed it on. And what we're not meaning there is that we can change the will of God, but understanding that it is by that request that we're, we're even showing our true desire is for him. And, and Lord, return with all haste. So on one hand, it's right for us to do that. But on the other hand, we also need to check our impatience. We also need to be patient enough to allow God the opportunity to work and his will to be done. And, and sort of it's those complementary yet different requests or understandings. Lord, make all haste to deliver. Do not, do not stay away from us and then yet wait patiently for that deliverance. Not not speed it up in your own mind to the point where, well, I can't take it anymore. No, you ask God to deliver and ask him to deliver you soon, but then in patience wait and wait for the will of God to be done. That, that's just trust that God's will is best. That's trust in his wisdom. That's what verse 20 is saying. And then what about verse 22, how it ends? It's a hard place. Many here see only a negative ending. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Is that a, a loud, sort of mournful bell that just 
stings at the end of this book, casting the whole thing in, in mourning and, and distrust and doubt? Is that what that is? Some think so. I, I among many others, would not be persuaded that it's, it's meant to necessarily have that negative ending. Certainly, it isn't one that, again, is, is all sunshine and roses. But what's, what's this doing? What's verse 22 doing? Well, what they're doing here is they're making their petition to the Lord and then at the end putting before him, but shall I say ultimatum, but I, I don't mean it in a, in a bad way. It's something like putting before the Lord his character, putting before the Lord who he is and his promises, and, and saying, do this for your people. Show your covenant faithfulness. Restore us. Forgive us. Unless you've utterly rejected us. Unless you remain exceedingly angry with us. Meaning, rather than that could happen but putting before the Lord what's impossible for him to actually do, to, to turn utterly and reject his people. That's what I think Lamentations is doing here. It, it, it's, ma- it's, it's doing what one pastor calls sort of making God temptable. And what he means is not that we test him, not that God can sin, but, but putting before him, Lord, if, if you don't do this, then all your promises and all that you've said are wrong and void, and, and the very character of God, who you've claimed to be to us, cannot be true. If, if you won't answer, if you won't restore, then you have utterly rejected us. But see, knowing from, from past Scripture, knowing from what God has promised, that can't happen. And you say, why? Why can't that happen? And again, the answer is Christ, of a covenant made between the Trinity itself, of, of a Father, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit telling each other in the, the covenantal Trinitarian union, promising to create a people that this people would fall and that they would save a remnant, that they would save their own people and that the Son would come, and the Son would be the, the one to restore, the one to accomplish it, and it would be the Father's will itself that he's accomplishing, and the Holy Spirit would be the one to bring it about, to connect the people to Christ himself and their merit, and to work into their hearts and restore their hearts. It's like us saying, Lord, do you not see our sorrow unless you don't care about us? You see, that statement is saying we, we don't actually believe that. That's how I believe Lamentations is, is ending there. And, and, and so, yes, there's pain there. Because they're not just making the statement of hope, Lord, you will, you will do this. It is that request. It, it is one framed in sorrow and grief, but one that's being said, God must care, God does. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are to do. When we're searching for God in grief, it's to know that through Christ, our laments must move God to action. And that's significant. That's significant because otherwise grief and lament is meaningless. Otherwise it's not secure and we're in doubt. Yeah, but what if God doesn't? What if you're, you're sitting there at a loss and, and you're at that point where you're even doubting, does God even care? Is he even doing this because he finds pleasure in it? 
Is he finding pleasure in, in putting me through this pain? Lamentations, and I'm summarizing not just chapter 5 here, but the book has shown us that's not what's going on. That God is faithful, that he's not afflicting from his heart, but that he will respond that he will answer, and that our lament moves God to action. But we need to understand the mechanisms of that and to see that that for the people, they knew that through covenant. For us, we can clarify that. We can expand on it and say it's through Christ. And so your grief and your pain will and must matter to God. And after all, isn't that what we need to hear in the grief? In searching for God through Christ, our laments matter to him. He cares. God has not abandoned us, and it's much clearer now in Christ. What, what does Paul say? He who gave us his own son, he who did not spare his own son, how could he not give us all things? You see, the point there is in giving us Christ, he did give us all things. In giving us Christ, he showed us that his heart was for his people, that he would save his people and give to them all that they need Brothers and sisters, even in your grief, you have Christ through faith. Assuming you do trust him and place your faith in him, you have Christ. And thus all of it matters, and God sees it all, and he is on his throne. And Christ reigns, and he's there to answer. He's there to comfort. He's there to make your lament matter. And so, in the times of pain, grieve. Search for God, but always be led to the, the I don't want to say hidden truth of lamentations, because that, that's the point, and it's not like trying to hide it truly, but maybe it's better to say the, the gem of lamentations that you have to dig for, and that's that your lament matters through Christ. Hold to that hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful to have gone through your word and gone through lamentations and, and to come to the gem and to the, the beauty of who you are, and that's that you have not utterly rejected your people and will not, and that you function through a remnant of your people, you function and will save them. And then we, as, as the church of Jesus Christ, even seated here, can read a, a book written years and years, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and see the same truth. It matters. Grief matters. And, and it can even be grief and pain that's self-inflicted, and even that matters to you. You will show us sins where we failed and bring us back. And, and our grief matters when it's not our own fault, where it's not our cause, but something you call us to go through. And it matters because we are in Christ. And it matters because of the covenant. It matters because you promised to the human race so long ago, I will be your God and you will be my people. You have been fulfilling that word from the beginning of time, even from the 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 vantage point, the context of sin of our first parents, there was a promise of, a, of, of being our God, saving us and taking us to be your people. You have remained faithful to that throughout it all. And Lamentations as a book help us, helps us to see that truth even when for a time it's as if you've removed your presence from us. Even through a time where you're, you're silent, it seems, we know still that that you're on your throne, you see, you care. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that 
for our, our broken brothers and sisters here, this truth would give to them great hope and as well bring them to you and, and draw them closer. We pray this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.